Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. The Tortoise Shack, as you know, relies on you to keep these mics on, the conversations going. Uh, If you enjoy what we do, even if you don't, but you get something out of it, give something back. And how you do that is you click the link on the podcast that's in your hand right now. It says patreon.com forward slash Tortoise Shack. And you just join us for a month and see if you think it's value for money. There's tons of additional content, including conversations this week that we've had already with Nicholas Dale Leal, our Colombian friend, who gives us brings up the speed on events in Peru, Colombia, Brazil, and Argentina. Uh, really, really great breakdown from Nicholas, and he was particularly strong on Peru. And it was great to get a proper understanding of what has taken place there over the last few months, and indeed the wider context of that. There's also my conversation with Senator Lynn Boylan of Sinn Féin and the 50 euro we're all getting back for our utility bills as a result of the work that she has done. Uh, and we have a great chat with our friend Frank McGrath, the audiologist, on, on Tinnitus Awareness Week, something that affects a lot of people out there. So all of those are available as quickly as I can turn them around for our members and you get access to our live online Sunday shows. Come along and have your say when we turn off the recording and have a chat with you, our members. Uh, I won't delay any further. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and we are back speaking to one of our dear friends, regular contributors and uh, one, one of the one of the few economists who, who gives me the time of day nowadays, I should say. But uh, uh, our, our friend in Colorado, uh, Constantine Gordiev. Constantine, it's great to talk to you. I know it's it's now it's early February, but happy new year all the same. Thanks, Tony, and the same to you, and of course to Martin as well, who is definitely missed right now. Yeah, and uh, look, we we he will be back. He promises. This. He's he's like that bad. He's like a bad scene. And I'll be back. But but listen, before before we go anywhere, the weather around you has been insane the last few days. When we were touching base around this, you were talking about temperatures as low as minus thirteen, minus eighteen degrees Celsius. Can I ask you, first of all, is that typical? And and then second of all, what the hell is it like trying to get on with your day during that? <laughs> it's fantastic, actually. You know, so we, we've hit um during the week, uh, we had some pretty nasty lows, uh, around I think minus 22, 25 degrees um centigrade, which is okay. I mean, because it's dry here. Um, so you get nice, really powder snow super light um like flurries actually of it you know and it kind of suspends in the air so it's really stunningly beautiful it's usually sunny as well during that time really crispy perfect workout in the morning so no it's kind of it's absolutely normal here and we do have extremes of weather so you would have like say minus 25 28 at night and you would have like maybe you know minus three uh during the day so you have the within the day variation absolutely massive and the reason for it is we're literally on the slopes of the um mountains here of the rocky mountains so we have um, you know just about a few miles from us you have the fourteen thousand feet uh peaks so as a result of that it's extreme weather it channels the weather from canada that's the place where was it the lead the leadville flight 100 happens or so isn't it that insane that's right yeah yeah, yeah. well not quite our neighborhood but just yeah about yeah. You know, 40 minutes drive from us yeah yeah that yeah. I, I have it i do and for listeners benefit that's a hundred it's a hundred mile race across the rockies essentially and in my in my in my madness it's something that i do want to try and do some stuff. You should absolutely come over stay you know i mean like and you know go for it it, it is a fantastic race um, yeah. I mean, lifestyle here is all centered on the mountains, uh, co- you know, constantly. 
mm. myself and my you know mountaineering buddy will go and go over the weekend again into the mountains because there is all this fresh powder so we'll just go and hike um into the mountains and yeah it's going to be minus eight minus 10 degrees which is nice and beautiful sunny you know kind of run day really you know mm. so it's it's a lifestyle where Colorado is um, always been historically one of the healthiest states in the um, United States, both in terms of the cardiovascular disease, in terms of the obesity, um, in terms of exercise and so forth. So it's currently the second healthiest after Hawaii, and it usually competes with Hawaii on that uh, kind of front. So that's the reality of it. But yeah, you get so minus is, 25. So and- is, isn't that funny how geography has shaped health? You know I mean? uh, it does absolutely and it shapes culture as well of course because yeah. this is like you know i compare that for example in europe with the um mountain people from the alps um very different culture very much banded together type of society society where people are more kind of if you want reserved um kind of you know less effusive less um outspoken yeah. um but at the same time very self-reliant and mutually co-reliant as well I hadn't thought of it, but I, again, I, I I always remember uh, following the NBA as a kid, and uh, the, the the Denver Nuggets could never were, were seldom beaten at home because of the altitude. <laughs> That's and, true, yeah. and, and they could run other teams off the court. And you know, even now they have a great like let's like they have a great team right now. If, if no one's familiar, they have a great team right now. But nonetheless, it's kind of it's always interesting when it, that was the thing. Even going back, that anybody going you you, you could you couldn't you couldn't bet against them at home because no one could put up with the, the no one could play at altitude as they say um look we've gone we've gone into something i didn't think we go but i do want to ask you about the u.s itself and the situation we that's yet again uh it's, it's a political problem uh since the since the beginning of the united states since a constitutional uh this is how we're going to have to do things this is how we'll arrange it but they call it the debt ceiling and yet again they're at the situation whereby america has officially hit the debt ceiling and is now doing using creative accounting to keep paying the bills um do you how does like first of all do does the man on the street give a damn and and, be, and, and, and <laughs> no <laughs> Nobody gives a damn. Even the politicians themselves, it's a circus, okay? It's an opportunity for the Republicans uh, or Democrats, whoever is controlling the Congress, uh, to slap the administration, whoever controls the administration, with yet more rhetoric about the need for fiscal discipline, about the need to curb the spending, and, you know, and so forth. Reality is, every economist knows this is a charade. It started, didn't start, by the way, with the United States. It didn't start with Hamilton. It started in 1917 after the United States entered the World War One, and the U.S. Congress passed the first and the second Liberty Bond Acts. And that second Liberty Bond um, Act is the one which actually put the legislative roots for the uh, debt ceiling. Of course, it was based on the premise that the United States was in the World War One at the time. Full budgetary authority rested with the White House. So as a result of that, Congress tried to put kind of a cap, if you want, or at least have some control over budgetary means. In 1974, all of that changed, and the budgetary decision-making moved to Congress. So as a result of that, the debt ceiling became obsolete. But nothing ever becomes obsolete in a federal bureaucracy. So it's just been kind of around. And we now have three decades, effectively, of the you know two drunks in a local pub late at night, completely wasted, deciding on whether to stop ordering pints or not. That's what the debt ceiling is literally about. Both sides need to spend money in order to guarantee themselves elections. We had electoral year. The Democrats have spent like drunk sail- drunken sailors. 
promises left, right, and center, and they got reelected. Uh, well, they didn't get reelected, but they at least got a better outcome than was expected before they went into the elections. So now it's the turn of the Republicans to start beating the drum. I mean, the danger here, of course, is that if the United States does go even into a technical default, um, the dramatic impact will be on the global economy from that, because it will boost significantly the cost of borrowing for all of the countries, not just the United States. Now, in 1979, when the United States technically defaulted for several days on its debt issues because they stupidly moved the office of treasury that was issuing the checks physically back in the days, and of course, because of the move, they couldn't issue those, and they canceled two, two auctions of debt because there was ongoing at the same time debate about, ta-da, debt ceiling. Yeah, yeah, the, the, and, and, so, and we have to we have to cut the debt. We have to cut the we have. That's to right. So yeah, when yeah. they did that, when they did that without any move from the uh, Federal Reserve, without any change in policy rates, the U.S. borrowing rates uh, on average have gone by about 0.6 percentage points, which was pretty big. And that effect stayed for a number of years thereafter, even mm-hmm. though it was like two days long technical, not even, it was never officially declared default because God forbid, under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, you cannot disparage United States debt. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's all literally but, a but, but, political but charade. But, but it's important to say that like, you know, in the uh, in as 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 those rates would go, so too would the rates across the globe. I mean, you know, correct. And and like we keep to, we keep hearing these phrases like the de-dollarification of of the global economy, but we're not there. You know, we're not there yet. There are some countries which are getting closer to it, mm-hmm. and of course, we have to also remember that the United States currently in a slightly different situation or scenario than we were, say, in 2013, when a similar type of that. Um, a ceiling was uh, in the conversation in then 2018 as well. Uh, so the, the problem right now is that we've had now three years of above 120% debt to GDP ratios. In fact, in 2020, we set the all-time record 128.4%. In 2021, it dipped a little bit to 127%. Wahoo, fiscal mm. responsibility. Then came 2022, during which apparently Biden administration was dramatically cutting deficits and yet that, and there was no recession, God mm. forbid we say that, you know, there was an increase in debt to GDP ratio to 129%. So we currently looking at breaching 130, going to about 131% this year, that's the forecast for 2023. And of course, that is an all-time high, which is absolute insanity from the US point of view. It's, it, it's and I, I just want to try and put that in context for, for so we always, we if you cast your minds back, folks, if you can, to how much trouble Ireland was in during the during after the crash, we were told our debt to GDP ratio needed to be reduced. How how we could carry the debt? Now we're carrying an astronomical debt as a country, but because our GDP is running at such a, a level, we're considered kind of no longer. We're actually considered low risk, one of the few low risk, low um good outcomes in the in the medium term by mm. by financial markets. Whether you believe, well, no, sorry, the GDP figure obviously it's real. Is it sustainable? That's a different question for Ireland. Um, you know, is it? You know, is it? it is Tony, it re- GDP figure in Ireland is not real. I mean, it, it's completely imaginary to the extent of about forty percent. Yes, but it's real on the page in terms of these these calculations. Oh, oh, okay. yeah. But it's not real in terms of the economy. You know, it's just it doesn't work that way. Um, no, no, it's not. It's not real in terms of the not just economy. It's also even not real in terms of the companies that are you know robustly and boisterously declaring those absurd numbers. 
And like, say, for example, when Apple moves intellectual property across the borders, their GDP moves by multiple percentage points. Mm-hmm. You go like, you know, are you real? You know, I mean, no, of course it's not real. Even Apple doesn't believe that those assets really genuinely exist by and large. I mean, this is all accounting tricks. But the funny thing about the intellectual property thing, and I, and I do try to explain it to people, and the, the simple way of saying it is if you're holding maybe an Apple phone in Colorado and there's an Apple logo on it, there's an intellectual value supposed to be to that branding. And that's been charged yeah. effectively through maybe Cork. You know, yeah. Uh, well, no, not quite. You know, remember, not quite. Cork is for the things that are in Australia happening, New Zealand yeah. happening. Yeah, but you get, but you get my, but you get, the ones that are closer to Ireland, not the, the ones in the United like, States. But there yeah. could be an, there could be a guy. You could be at a thing this evening, Constantine, and there's a lad going by you with a with a sled that has Monster Energy sponsored on it, and is it the IP yeah. is owned in Dublin? You know, and, oh, is and it? yeah, so so we have to so, probably so, next to my house in Dublin, you know, as well, yeah. somewhere around there in the Docklands, yeah. not far. But and 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 you know, and that's why they were managed to put, I believe, it was 1.8 billion through Dublin in terms of writing off against intellectual property for Monster. So these figures, they're not real. We don't know what what the actual no, value it's... of these IPs are, and it's nonsense that we have. You know, it, it, look, you know, it's just it's just creative accounting. But I suppose then, to, if we can. I, I read something yesterday, I think it was yesterday, where it showed that the EU itself is bouncing around at sort of 0.212 above, you know, of GDP growth in total. And someone said if you stripped out the Irish 12.5% figure, the EU dips into almost a, tech, a recession. Ireland, this this tiny dot in the EU's in the EU's armory is, would 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 be enough to put us into recession. To tip it in, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a reality everywhere. It's a reality here. It's a reality in Canada. It's a reality in the United States. It's a reality in Mexico. All of the economies right now are in a very strange, weird, if you want, kind of pattern that we economists have hard time grasping and understanding. We have low unemployment. Uh, in fact, we have near historically low unemployment levels. At the same time, we have also near long-term period lows in terms of the labor force participation. We cannot understand where the hell did all these able-bodied males in particular, but also some females, mostly males, have gone and disappeared to because they're the ones who account for this drop, precipitous drop, and um, kind of low levels of the labor force participation. So on the other hand, we look at any indicators of the real economy, things like, say, for example, PMI, purchase and management indices, and they all are screaming recession for months now. And yet on their official numbers, there's, you know, perhaps slightly weakening growth in the United States, certainly weaker growth in Europe, certainly weaker growth in the UK, uh, but nonetheless, no recession. It's, you know, it's just kind of inconceivable. I think that, you know, you're probably in a good company if you, economists don't talk to you. Because apparently economists can no, can no longer measure the actual economy, let alone forecast anything or predict it to the future. I think, yes, I agree. And I think, you know, I, I was speaking to Grace Blakely, um, the UK economist, a, a few months ago. And Martin said to her, like, it's a technical recession. She said, she said shut up, it's a recession in <laughs> the real economy. Yeah, there is no yeah. such thing. There is. I mean, yeah. I mean when, when somebody says technical recession, that means it doesn't impact me. My mm. pension is okay, you know. And for most of the people, you know, in the likes of the central banks, their pensions are okay, no matter freaking what, okay? Yeah. But the, if you look at the reality of the economy on the ground, and I did recently analysis, I should probably, you know, write an article, you know, about it or something. Um, but if you look at the, you know, 
since the beginning of this century, so since year 2000, and you take out the um, dot-com recession, and you look at the trend of growth in personal income, personal disposable income in the United States, whether you take real terms or you take nominal terms, we are currently not on a track even to catch up on any time horizon with that because the rate of change in personal disposable income has dramatically deaccelerated. So we are on a flatter growth line. We had two knockdowns in terms of the global financial crisis, big recession then, and the COVID uh, recession. We're being told that we have recovered from the COVID recession, even with the government subsidies in the United States, which were bigger and more direct to the households than they were in the in Europe, for example. There is no recovery. We're still below pre-COVID levels of personal disposable income per capita. So when we turn That's, around and uh, uh, economists uh, uh, look at I, us and say, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I want to make a point on this because... That is the actual benchmark that we should be looking at, not this GDP figure, not this, uh, not this index. The, the personal, the, like, so the the medium uh, income yeah. for for households in most of what we would call the developed world, and you know, we see it, it reports out of the UK that they're still below two thousand and eight levels. Correct, um, especially if you strip out the top, say, ten percent earners, hmm. and you look actually at the bulk of the economy, the so-called upper middle class and middle class, they're disappearing. Yeah. And that's, you know, if you think about the good old, go back to Bismarckian welfare state and the legitimacy of the state and politics that we have in Europe, in the United States, in Japan and everywhere else, that traces back to the 19th century, all of that was based solely on upper middle class and middle class. Yeah, the poor were always disregarded, the rich were always there, and they always kind of were in support of the whatever regime gives them guarantee of their kind of perpetuation of their status quo. You know, but in terms of the not just democracy, but you know, also in the competitive, um, you know, authoritarian states, that was the case. But then beyond that, of course, in democratic setting, this is the bedrock of the society that we have, and that bedrock is evaporating. We're not only quick sand ground yet territory but we're certainly in the mica construction zone <laughs> in this kind of case you know yeah I, I, and again just to then then let's 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 talk about what the what governments and central banks are doing they're they're still using the same levers that they used 100 years ago they're still using the interest interest rate mallet to uh that that, that is not is that is only going to make actual the the yeah. the, the, the issue um, worse and and, now and we're if seeing, you look at if you look at the ECB versus the Fed, Fed has multiple interest rate levers that they're using. ECB is hammering across basically two of them. Most of it directly goes into the mortgages. In the United States, most of the mortgages are fixed, 30-year. If they're not fixed, you can refinance. In Europe, of course, uh, that is not the case. There's much more of the adjustable mortgage rates, and they're directly going straight up. Go back to the incomes. Incomes are not going straight up. Mortgages are going straight up. The rents are going straight up. As a result of that, the costs, you know, even though they're saying they're combating the general inflation, maybe they're combating general inflation, but then they are front-loading that which they're combating on the housing costs, on credit card costs, on car loans costs, and so forth. So as a result of that, the interesting thing about this is that we look at distribution, and again, in the United States, um, recently I was chairing a conference here in Colorado, and you know, was you know, a speaker from the CU Boulder, who is in charge of the forecast in Colorado's economy and state economy, and he's also on the advisory uh, panel for the Federal Reserve and so forth. So, I mean, you know, pretty seasoned economist. And we were talking about this, uh, and he was talking about the 
how much of the um, stimulus checks are still sitting in terms of the savings, that the deposits are high and everything else. And I kind of said, like, what are the distributional effects of all of that? And he said, ah, this is the problem. If you look at the bottom 50% of the population, they're the ones who have no savings, and they're the ones who have exhausted pretty much their credit cards and revolving debt or the adjustable rate debt lines. So they're sitting with a huge debt loads. Their debt interest rate is going straight up every time the Fed is increasing interest rates, and they have no safety cushions at all. The other 50% are kind of okayish for now. But that 50% of the lower earners is absolutely getting squeezed from all sides by the monetary policy, combination of monetary policy, and the lack of growth in personal disposable income. Is it is it also, and I put it to you, um, and, and not to sound all conspiratorial, but is it also that we've had... Uh, you've referred to the top 10% who have seen significant wealth increases through two crises that you've mentioned. They've seen significant increases and the, and the, and there's been a slowing down in the last couple of quarters of that transfer of wealth from bottom to top. But in some ways, then they've just reframed that and said, well, what we need is more competition in the workplace. Therefore, we need to almost have more unemployment. We need to make it, you know, and there has been that creative destruction in the economy. Uh, there, like I mean, like there's there's been mm. some of that's been said out loud in minutes of meetings. You know, um, in in the US, they said, you know, unemployment sitting around four. We we could really do with it around six. I mean, yeah, like, no, absolutely. I mean, this is this is how the macroeconomics works, or at least you know they claim that it's supposed to work. And of course, everyone forgets that um, it's the same one percent and the same ten percent of the uh, top decile of the population in terms of income and wealth are the ones who are dependent on a 90%, not only for services and for the goods provision in the economy, but also for the peace and also for the ability to actually enjoy their wealth. Because otherwise, we can turn into the classic Latin American you know, society with extreme degrees of the polarization in terms of incomes and wealth, where you need to have guards at your own house in order to actually enjoy the house, let alone be able to enjoy the rest of the country. And uh, I, I, I'm... I'm kind of, you know, thinking again, back to Ireland for a moment, we talked about that intellectual property and how vague it is. That could move in the morning, like it's it's six months away from them deciding that actually we can domicile that now in in Singapore or whatever it is. So all of that is, you know, it's no more than, it's it's, it's as flimsy as that. But when we talk about it then in the real economy, um, Constantine, I, I, I put it to you that that's why we're seeing, unfortunately, scenes like we've seen in the streets of Finglas and Ballymun and East Wall and these because of that lack of connection between the economy and society and the breakdown in, in how people's actual lived experiences. It was you yourself who said to me, it's better to go out onto the street and see what the shop windows look like, see see what people are carrying, see if how they're what their what the bags of shopping look like, see see all of those things. And then you'll get a real sense of it rather than looking at uh, a Lafacur, for example, you know? Oh, forget the, forget the Laffer curve. A friend of mine runs a macroeconomic advisory out in San Francisco. I mean, he's an ex ex Fed, you know, ex you know, senior Wall Street kind of economist, you know, quasi retired. And all he yesterday put up a little write up from the Wall Street Journal on his uh, uh, on his website, uh, which is basically talking about the uh, demand for real estate in metaverse. And apparently, there is the prices of real estate and of land in meta in metaverse are dropping. 
I mean, you kind of scratch your head. We have two generations right now, including two largest generations since the baby boom generation who cannot afford homes, who cannot afford rents, mm-hmm. who are living with their parents in the United States at the rates higher than they are in Italy. And this is a perennial. It's kind of, you know, there was, you mm-hmm. know, uh, uh, what's, uh, um, so, uh, there was a moment in 1970s, late 1970s, called Sarpasso. Sarpasso is the Italian for passing by, okay? And uh, that was a moment when Italian economy, having adopted new accounting methods for GDP, which included drugs and prostitution and illegal activities, other illegal activities into the GDP, surpassed on for a certain period of time that of the United Kingdom. And so, of course, in the UK, that was a big scandal. Italians have passed us by by the size of the economy. We have now exactly the same problem in the United States as well. Mm-hmm. We have now surpassed Italy in one indicator that Americans were always pointing at Europeans and saying, your economy is so stagnant that your children are staying with, your, uh, with their parents into their 40s. Well, congratulations. In the United States, we have that now. And yet we have the metaverse deflation in terms of the land. It is surreal world that we're inhabiting today. We have people... As I said before, and say bottom 50%, but they really, actually it's more than that, and bottom say 70% and so mm-hmm. forth. And that number is growing, by the way, because people from above are dropping out of the upper middle class into the middle class and from the middle class into the lower income uh, classes as well. So as that population is out there, we are talking about the esoteric, if you want, existence that the top 5%, not even 10% have in this country where they have in they investing in metaverse in land i mean yeah. it's insanity yeah, no, I, I, and and just to put that in context for again it through, through the lens of, of of the prism of ireland we've seen a 60 percent rise last year in the year that we've now boasted that we're the fastest growing economy in the world a 60 percent rise of people working who are at the in are the ARP, the at risk of poverty category, living in some form yeah. of deprivation. That is what's that's this it's the same thing, except for we we like we're supposed to have this cake that at least we're supposed to be able to cut the cake and share the cake. But if you if this is what <laughs> Well, I mean, there's somewhere there is a cake, and apparently the central bankers are telling us that we are eating too much of that cake. People who are actually at the risk of poverty haven't been employed and have been working as well. Mm. They have been now told, and you know, we of course have been now told by the likes of the ECB that there is too much wage inflation. Mm. I mean, we need to actually cut the wage inflation, and of course, most of the wage inflation happened during this pandemic at the lower earner kind of territory where you have the. Even not unionized labor. Unionized labor is currently trying to catch up, especially in the United States with that. So they're kind of in a uh, later, if you want, echelon of the wage inflation. There was actually in the manual service jobs where you couldn't get anyone to work because mm-hmm. you had the risk of pandemic and you had really horrendous pay and benefits. So now we have a little bit of uptick there, not quite really to the living wage, but at the very least, a little bit something back. Okay. And we have now the central bankers who are going at their wages and say, well, there's too much inflation there. Yeah. We're going to have to combat that. We, we, we heard this coming out of the... Uh, first of all, we heard it in the Celtic Tiger era, competitiveness, competitiveness. What that meant was suppress wages. Then we heard it yeah. that when what it meant when we came out into the crash to say, well, wages are now cheap, so we need to maintain our competitiveness or competitiveness. Now no. we're at the stage. Uh, and, you know, despite everything, 
Ireland essentially has full employment, Constantine. You know, the US has full employment. The UK for the UK for all of its ills and its many ills, people are, you know, th this this um, idea that there's uh, a million people sitting around doing nothing is is a myth. But they want what they mean is wage suppression now. And that you're right to say that some um, steps were taken to bridge the gap between the minimum wage and the living wage, but they didn't go anywhere close to where they need to be. And that was before we hit this in inflationary cycle. So yet again, that's where I'm saying we have a 60% up, up, uplift in people who are working and poor because... Correct. But that's because we as economists, here we as myself, um, as a profession, as the advisors to the governments, as advisors to politicians, we have for decades misinterpreted what competitiveness is really about. I mean, the real competitiveness is achieved, especially in a small open economy, kind of like Ireland, by the measures that, say, for example, countries like Singapore are pursuing. High degree of robotization, high degree of innovation, high levels of technological investment, technological capital development, and at the same time, skills development. Austria, look at Austria. You know, old economy very much demographically, if you want, squeezed and challenged. They have managed to sustain tremendously productive capacity of their labor force by having apprenticeship programs, training programs that are in tune with technological innovation. Look at Finland, look at Estonia. I mean, Estonia came out from the Soviet Union in 1991. And since then, it has been effectively one of the top in the world adopters of the innovation. Not developers. They're not inventing stuff. They're adopting stuff. And they're training their, you know, their younger, if you want, cohorts of workers to work with these technologies. That's the future. Okay? For Ireland, reducing wages, that's not, you know, we, we talk about race to the bottom. That's like actually sinking to the bottom and staying there. You can't race any, any lower from that. And it's it's not a it's not a prescription for economic development. And when you look at, for example, Irish economy, that bifurcation or split between the multinationals, which are technologically enabled, which are capital intensive, technology intensive, uh, and their workforce that they import predominantly from outside of Ireland, those who employ the youngest and the most bright Irish people as well to work in it. And then we have the domestic economy, which is still probably stuck somewhere. I mean, maybe we got out of the 19th century, but somewhere in the beginning of the 20th century in terms of the technology adoption, in terms of innovation adoption, in terms of the new business models and so forth. Yeah. And when I actually, I think you missed one part of it that is actually doing quite nicely. It's the part that services those corporations, whether it be members of the tax avoidance networks or the or the, the legal professions or the tax, but they are doing very, very well. This, this, oh, but they're the most parasitic ones of them all. It's but that's, but, but, but like, I, I made a joke a few weeks ago when Pascal Dunne, who was, un, was under pressure about the posters, I said, well, I wonder who Arthur Cox would like to replace him with, you know? And it was all... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Pascal, Pascal is probably the more competent of the entire lot there. I mean, to be honest, okay? And I think, you know, and I think he got, you know, a bit of a, you know, it's kind of a bit of a storm in the teacup in terms of the posters. No, I, I, do I, I don't disagree with you in terms of the, I, well, okay, I've, I've, I think I went a couple of years ago when we did our end of year uh, awards, I think I said who, that he was the my uh, politician of the year. And I think got a lot of flack for saying mm. that. I also, <laughs> but, but, but people think that that's because I'm saying that I agree with him. I don't. I, I oppose a lot that's of it. True. I oppose his ideology. I oppose his, 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 his 
the idea that he's been, but he's been very bloody successful in what he yeah. what he does. Like you know, so so yeah. I can say I don't think that I think Ireland should be doing more to combat tax avoidance on a global scale. But Pascal Donahue says <laughs> you can't do that exactly. I mean, to be honest, I mean, as I said before, okay, in order to do that, we need to have an economy like, say, Austria has, mm. like, say, Slovenia has, like, say, um, Finland has, Sweden. Competitive economy, not on the basis of the pure wage costs, but actually in terms of the productivity growth. Okay, in order to do that, we should spend 20, 30 years. We should have spent. In the mm. past, but we also have to do that in the future as well. Retooling our economy, retraining our workforce, changing the way the economy operates, changing our priorities at social level as well. We have to actually, you mentioned something, say, for example, the law society. Law society should not be the creme de la creme of the economy. Mm. Bankers should not be creme de la creme of the economy. It is not healthy for the economy to have that. Think think you, about this in, so, in real in real terms. The we've heard that we have to lift the pay off. We have to lift the 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 scale for ba- banker salaries, and yet we cannot um, at the bottom. Why? We cannot pay a minimum. Why? What the hell do they do? Oh, well, I, I tell you what they do at the moment. They, they sit around and watch ECB put up the rates and go, oh, my God, we're making yeah. loads of money without doing anything. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, <laughs> and it's it's even before they have to start dealing with the fallout from the higher rates, because yep. for now, people still can dip into their savings, you know. Mm. But once that's gone and those with adjustable mortgage rates or with the tracker mortgage rates and we, are going to get have, hammered. And we do still have quite a bit of them in the Irish market. But uh, but well, of course I, we do. can I just then, can I sort of go, if we could go, um, to then the, the 2023 forecast that we've seen in the last few days, the Financial Times have put out a few articles, and we've we're looking through them, and we see that you know the the top of the pile yet again is Ireland. Uh, Portugal is uh, is sitting there around second, and I just want to point out something. Because I went and checked, <laughs> I got on to uh, the, the vice deputy leader of the, the Socialist Party in Portugal, who's the party of government. And I said, can you tell me what your uh, deprivation rate went from in the same time? Because their growth rate is estimated okay. to be half of Ireland's, yet they they actually decreased deprivation, whereas we increased mm. deprivation. So I said, OK, I'd rather have a more sustain- sustainable growth and you know shrinking inequality as opposed to huge mm. growth and growing inequality. So that's me getting my my ideological dig in at early constant. But we look at things like the UK forecast to be bottom of the barrel and mm. Russia to actually return to growth. Um, mm. it, it, it have we learned a lesson as a global economy that first of all the sanctions that we think we are all powerful and we're not as powerful as we like to think. And uh, is there is there a lesson then that w- why should I pay an extra 500 quid on my mortgage just to pay bankers more and um, and pretend that we're doing something for inflation that's already falling. Well, I mean, there's two things here. Yes, they are related, of course. Uh, yeah, we completely missed, um, and it's been an ongoing saga. I mean, com- you know, it's not like we once missed. We continue to miss. Um, the uh, If you want analysis of um, what potential is there for imposing pain on the Russian economy, the reason for it is because the vast majority of the rest of the world is not in tune with the West whatsoever on those sanctions. If you look at, for example, India, India is in a sweet spot. It's getting effectively Russian oil at a massive discount. Russia is okay with that discount because Russia doesn't pay its bills in the US dollars. So as a result of that, they don't care if you cap their oil as long as the oil is capped at the levels where they actually can recoup their costs, which they do. 
Um, Russian budgetary dynamics are not particularly great, but they have some room in terms of, you know, uh, you know, they have some capacity to tax, for example, oil revenues and gas revenues a little bit more, which they did last year, and they probably will do again this year. Uh, in terms of the domestic economy, there is a huge amount of substitution. We thought that the companies are going to leave in droves. It now turns out, and there's good analysis coming out of Stockholm on that, uh, they have an ongoing project which tracks in the university there, which tracks the um companies live in Russia, um, it turns out that about 15% of the companies, Western companies, have left Russia. And 85 stayed, and they're still there. Well, the, the, no, mean, that's not fair. Many of them just changed their names. <laughs> so well, <many>. yeah, okay. <laughs> so, and, uh, you know, and uh, many of them actually hired more Russians as well, yeah. in, the process, uh, in the process as well. So, um, irony of it is um, is that you've, you've mentioned that, the de-dollarization of the economy, de-westernization de of the economy, de-globalization of the economy. All of these Ds lead to one thing. The global economy is changing. It's changing dramatically. Some of those changes are not necessarily great insofar as U.S. sanctions and European sanctions uh, towards Russia are in the right place. They are trying to achieve the right objective. They're trying to force Russia to withdraw from Ukraine, where it should not be in the first place. They're trying to force Russia to negotiate with the Ukraine, even though there's a question of whether Ukraine is willing to do so. But uh, taking that aside, the ball is in Russian, uh, in Russian court. So in a way, those sanctions, as painful as they are, as disruptive as they are, they nonetheless probably are necessary. It's You can call it a necessary evil, whatever you want to call it, okay? The reality is they're not working. They're not working even at the longer term scale. We now have in Washington explicitly, the national security um, agencies are concerned that the Russian economy and the Russian society's ability to withstand this war and continue this war effort for indefinite freaking period of time is in excess of the Western's ability to finance the weapons and the financial and economic supports for the Ukraine. So this is kind of the, on the background, things that the newspapers are not really touching on yet. In the background, there is this serious concern. It's starting to percolate through the national security analysts kind of circles and all, but not yet hidden the mainstream. When it does, we're going to have to reckon with the reality that, as I said before, vast majority of the rest of the world is not in line with us on the sanctions against Russia, is not in line with our view of the war in the Ukraine. And look, I mean, it's not even an issue of realpolitik. It's just an issue of why they are not. And that's a very important question. And it's a very complex question. Part yeah, of it is disillusionment uh, with the world order that the United States presided over. That's it. Part and I, is, I mean, we, we can see what, like, we can only have to look to, you know, I was delighted to see the back of Bolsonaro. Absolutely, I was. But we know when Lula came in uh, that it was, you know, it would be a move to a different type of politics. But we also know that he is opposed to the war in Ukraine, but not through the prism that we look at it. You know, there's Correct, a, the, yeah. so, so we have to be honest with these things. And like, you know, again, and I, and I'm not, listen, before anybody starts shouting at their, at the, at the phone or whatever, I'm not, I'm not doing what about re or any of that sort of, I think we have to be honest and real about this. You know, I, I heard Anthony Blinken in Russia uh, talking about, you know, we can't have uh, Russia invade a country and start taking their land while going to visit Israel in the last week. Yeah, you know, exactly. so 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 we have to be absolutely. And this is not what aboutism. This is just these are facts. This is the reality. And we have to we have to understand that this is why when you say, Constantine, that 
people view the world through the, through the longer lens of time, they understand what the U.S. has meant to to them in, in over decades, over generations. Forget the debate about the Middle East and mm. forget the debate about Israel. I mean, yes, you you are correct in pointing that, but there is a lot of points of contention there and debate. Okay, the United States was involved in a very high profile North American summit in Mexico about a month ago. And it was presidential level stuff. They even flew Joe Biden out there, which takes quite a bit of you know logistics apparently to ship him uh, these days. Uh, but anyways, um, so Joe Biden went out with a very bombastic statement to Mexico, saying that we need to reaffirm our commitment to Mexico. We need to reaffirm the fact that we are you know vitally important partners, and you know all this stuff. The word partnership was repeated on so many occasions, and all. A week after the summit, the U.S. trade representative came out with a statement lambasting Mexico for reducing or banning GMOs in its agriculture. So here we have we talk the, we have the president of the United States talking about the partnership, about the equals, about the friendship, and things that imply that you and I normally would think that hey, you know, we can actually live with each other. And then the U.S. trade representative of the same president comes out and says, no, 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 you cannot have your own food policy. You cannot have your own food safety. Um, you cannot have your own agricultural policy. You cannot have a decision on what you're going to put in your soil. We don't, uh, we don't, we don't want some, we don't some of you even developing microchips for, for, uh, that's for right. Yeah. You can't sell it. You can't sell what you can produce. Oh, and by the way, your people, they're on the border trying to get into our country. We're not going to let them in either. Okay. So, it's kind of, you know, like th this rhetoric of Uncle Sam globally, everywhere, has been not matching the reality of the policies of the United States. And it is true for State Department, it's true for Treasury, it is true for sanctions, it is true for trade, it is true for absolutely flipping everything. So at this stage, countries like Brazil, big countries, important countries, globally countries can, that can drive global agenda in terms of policies, look at it and say, so we have a choice, okay, we can actually align with China, but also India and also Russia. And, you know, look, I mean, by and large, you know, you know they're not necessarily going to demand stuff from us. We're big. Okay. Yeah. Different issue for the smaller countries, of course. Yes. But at the very least, we can count on transactional contracts with them. Or we can actually align with the United States. And you never know what's going to happen when the next president comes into office or the different party takes over the Congress. Yeah. And when they look at that choice, I mean, it doesn't matter. So the Biden administration, honestly, is trying to do the same thing that they, you know, the Democrats have been doing since 1990, this kind of globalization slash neoliberalism kind of agenda and approach to the policymaking. So they had in the last year or so, they had Africa summit, they had mm -hmm. Middle East summit, they have Asia Pacific summit, and they have the North American summit. All of these were designed to bring the countries back, or Latin America as well. So pretty much every continent, even Africa, from which United States have completely detached itself for decades. Okay, in every one of those regions, the United States is trying to set an agenda of we're going to rekindle the friendly, you know, if you want relations and things like that, and trust in America. But they're delusional because all of these leaders come into those meetings having no trust in America anymore, having no you know, tangible, you know, feeling of any commitment from America to them. And then, you know, you compare, say, for example, in Africa summit, the United States had deployed total roughly 
speaking, 350 million worth of dollars worth of new investment and trade initiatives. This is like one week for China yeah. in Africa. Yep. So the, the same leaders of Africa look at it and say, like, we can talk to China about real money, or we can we have to jump through the hoops in aligning ourselves with Americans. And who knows what's going to come out from there? I, 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 two, two really quick points. I know you said the the Israeli-Palestine conflict is very is very complex, but in figures, it's quite it's quite simple in one way. They've they've pledged on some you know once criteria are met, fifty million for the Palestinian uh, Authority, while they're continue to fund Israel to the tune of billions per year. Okay, so yeah, that's true. No, that, absolutely. That, I, okay, listen, that, that's, there's also an issue there that, of course, you know, there's there's beyond any. Like in Ukraine, we also say, for example, mm. yes, there can be issues on the ground, but there's absolutely no way of justifying what Russia is doing there. No. There's also absolutely no justification for what Israel is doing in the likes of Gaza, for example, mm. or in the rest of the Palestine. Palestine should be a country. It should be a sovereign state. It should be a state which is you know, encouraged and supported in terms of its peaceful you know, dealings with Israel, beyond any doubts. But just like as in Ukraine, there's territorial integrity issues. So don't take me yeah. wrong when I no, say I, no, I'm not. I, I, I absolutely am not. I just, but I also then the final thing I want to say on, on this is that there's already talk between I think it's Petro in Colombia and Lula of of we talk back to this where we started de-dollarization, talking about a combined currency to move away from that. Yeah. I mean, and that is you know that in itself, just those conversations happening. Um, show you the, the... it's it's the world which is you know if you think of the cryptocurrencies as being a you know kind of a solution searching for a problem the rest of the world is actually searching for a solution right now to the dollar hegemony and yes euro has been offering that opportunity before the current round of sanctions against russia and now the rest of the world is looking at the euro and saying hold on a second we put our trust in euro as the potential diversifier to the dollar hegemony and that's true because euro was the only challenger really meaningful mm-hmm. challenge in global trade to the dollar hegemony so far but now with the sanctions the euro is going to kind of lose that luster so as a result of that then you are left with either chinese currency which nobody really trusts to be honest right now and there's a, there are issues with it so beyond the doubts that's not going to displace dollar anytime soon it will continue a little bit eroding it, but it's not going to displace it. So now we're looking at something else. We're looking at the central bank digital currencies with the swap lines. I mean, like it's really complex kaleidoscope of stuff, but that's normal, yes? Yeah. Because in every technological innovation, you have this kind of explosion of different solutions. And then there will be a phase of consolidation. When that phase of consolidation comes is when we're going to see the US dollar and the tide going out and US dollar swimming without the trunks. Yeah, I, uh, look, I'm going to leave it there. I could talk to this man forever. I am so gl- grateful again. Talk to Konstantin Gordiev for giving us his time and his insights. Uh, I would would say to people, make sure you check out his. He, he's writing every now and then as well for the currency here, you know. So it's always well worth it. It's always worth a look. And I really, really appreciate uh, these insights. As as we as as long time listeners will know, but myself myself and the cat here, we, we're we come from different spectrums of things, but we have a lot more in. 
common. And I think that's what people should also take away from these conversations. We also come from a totally different parts of Dublin as well. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. South side, yes. <laughs> I, 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 listen, we'll leave it there, folks. Oh, we will. Speaking of the of South America, um, Colombian-based journalist Nicholas Dale Leal will be joining me to talk about what is uh, happening between Colombia, Brazil, and maybe some of the events that have gone on in Peru. I couldn't quite make head nor tail of it in the last few days, so hopefully Nicholas will bring us his insights. I always look forward to talking to him. We will talk to you all very, very soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.